Hello, hello, Discasters. How are you all doing this week? I hope you all had a wonderful week. Uh, I know I certainly had a pretty good week. Uh, yeah, no, well, actually, the big highlight of the week is the fact that um, uh, local restrictions here in Vancouver, Canada is, are being lifted. So things are going to start going to at least some semblance of normalcy, uh, which is good, which is, you know, progress in the right direction. So that's good. But that's enough about me. <laughs> You're here to talk. We're here to talk about this week's movie, which is Saving Mr. Banks. Uh, but before I jump into that film, just a quick headline that I saw over the last week come up is the fact that apparently uh, Bob Iger, uh, no, not Bob Iger, the other one, Bob Chapek, uh, has announced that apparently there will be more price hikes coming to the parks. And I think we all have opinions on that most of them being uh what the fuck and he's an idiot so we'll see what happens at the shareholders meeting and here's hoping that he gets kicked out because that's kind of the direction that things are going which to me is really funny so yeah so there's that which is good quite frankly i really believe it's only a matter of time before he's finally gone which again good riddance because yeah anyway Back to the point of this of this episode, which is the film Saving Mr. Banks. So, for those of you that don't know, the film Saving Mr. Banks chronicles the actual creation of the Mary Poppins film. Uh, basically, the whole story, is, kind of in a nutshell, is that... Uh, a Mrs. P.L. Travers, who owned who and who was the author of the actual Mary Poppins books, uh, has kind of been in a bit of a fight with Walt Disney for about 20 years, starting around like in the 1940s, uh, because Walt made a promise to his daughters to take the take the story that his daughters adored and put it into a film. But Mrs. P.L. Travers was just like, no, we're not fucking doing that. Eventually, what happened was uh, she ended up kind of just running out of money. And so her agent basically was like, look, let's take a look at this deal. You need the money. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to do it. And so she agreed reluctantly. However, she needed final say on the script. So she flew to Los Angeles and spent, for, and spent about two weeks with the, with the team, the writing team, uh, and basically wrote and made notes on the film that we know and love as Mary Poppins. There are, were a bunch of things that she was very adamant about. She was super nitpicky. It was apparently a complete nightmare working with her. Um, and actually, uh, one of the, um, the Sherman brothers uh, actually remembers it being a complete nightmare he's like yeah like i can't like i can't i can't think about it because it just infuriates me so yeah like it's crazy to think that this film that we love this movie mary poppins underwent such issues uh because of it it's like yeah, um, there's a quote here from Richard Sherman saying she hated everything. Uh, for like, she just didn't want anything 
going in the film, she was completely adamant about no animation and she hated almost all the songs. She didn't even want it to be a musical in the first place. She didn't want Dick Van Dyke in it. Mary Potter, Julie Andrews, she thought was too pretty. Like there were just left, right and center. She was making notes and it was just a complete nightmare to finally make the movie. And so, but of course the, the kind of one of the big twists was that Walt or the, the Disney company had final editing rights where while P, Mrs. P.L. Trevor's had, uh, I think, like, final script rights kind of thing. So, but anyway, I'm kind of jumping the gun here. Uh, so, this movie, the movie basically follows that. It follows the, like, the morning of uh, Pamela Travers flying to Los Angeles to meet Walt Disney uh, to kind of discuss the creation of the film finally after 20 years. Um Mrs. Travers is played by the incomparable and absolutely brilliant Emma Thompson. Walt fucking Disney is played by no one else but Tom fucking Hanks. And if there weren't better freaking casting choices, like, <laughs> it's just great. It's great. And the thing about this movie, too, is that it does it is an interesting job in, like, flashing back to her childhood because... The story of Mary Poppins really meant a lot to her. And so because she went through a lot of trauma as a child uh, because her father was uh, an alcoholic. Uh, He was actually a banker. And so that's kind of like where some of that comes in. Uh, The actual character of Mary Poppins is based off of her aunt uh who came in to assist the fam assist the family while her father was uh actually dying um i think i'm trying to remember what he was dying of i think it was consumption i think and i can't i i'm not i'm not sure if that's right but i think i'll find it in the in my notes no sorry tuberculosis he was dying of tuberculosis he died of tuberculosis and so yeah and so she kind of created the character and story of Mary Poppins as a way to, I guess, try and uh, come out of this trauma. I think it was just her way of channeling her trauma. And that's part of why it meant so much to her. And honestly, I, I can, I can get it. I definitely get it. Actually, there's a point in the film when, when Walt makes a point of saying, he's like, yeah, like I fully understand where she's coming from because I, I went through the exact same thing. When, and he makes a reference to when he sold the, uh, not the publishing rights, he sold the the rights to show the Mickey Mouse cartoons like way back in like the, or in like the 30s to a gentleman by the name of Pat Powers, uh, who was the first distributor of Walt Disney Mickey Mouse cartoons, because otherwise Walt never would have been able to showcase the cartoons. But he was so, but Walt was, because Mickey was so close to his heart, he just it took everything uh to to sign over the rights kind of thing right not that pat powers had like all of the rights um <clears throat> but the fact was was just that it, it to walt it still felt like he was giving away a part of his soul a part of his family and so that's what what mrs travers was equating it to because mary poppins and all those characters they are her family they're really were like the closest things she had to family uh, so they definitely make a point of making that connection that Walt fully understands where she's coming from, but he's trying so hard to tell her. It's like, I love this story. What I want to do with it 
I want to truly do it justice. And if you're, if you know some, and if you know how Walt worked, you know that he was a man who was, he was a creative. He was an artist. All of the stories that he helmed, the films that he helmed, especially in the golden age, were all passion projects. They were all projects that he, he loved and he, adored like he adored the story of Alice in Wonderland he adored the story of Peter Pan these were stories that he loved when he was a child and so in bringing them to the big screen those being passion projects for him you know he did I he would do them justice I think I mean sure today Peter Pan is problematic but you have to remember that a lot of that what was in that film was in the story originally. And so the, the story itself as a whole has issues, not the Disney version specifically, just the story as a whole. But yeah, and so this is Walt trying to convince P Mrs. Travers being like, I, the this this character, Mary Poppins, has been in mine and my children's lives for decades. And so he's trying really hard to be like, I love her. She's one of, she's part of my family. I want to do her justice. But it's like tearing, it's like clawing at, it's, it's like, uh, how's the saying go? It's, um, uh, an immovable object hits an unstoppable force or no, the other way around. An unstoppable force hits an immovable object. It's that kind of idea, right? Uh, anyway, so yeah, so, uh, Mrs. Travers, makes the trip out to Los Angeles. Uh, we meet her driver who is played by Paul Giamatti, who does, a, he's such a sweetie in the, in this, like his character is just very sweet. He's just a very nice guy. He's just very upbeat and positive and everything. He's very cute. Uh, who takes her to stay at the Beverly Hills hotel where she walks in and it's just littered with Disney stuff. But the cool thing that you notice is that all the stuff that's in there, like there's like, stuffies and balloons and blah, blah blah and all like like teddy bears and that kind of thing they are all of the time if you look at how they're designed they are fully designed from the 1960s they did a really good job of keeping with that consistency and then uh, she kind of just spends the night there in the hotel and then the next morning arrives at the disney studios and starts to work and of course this is where we first meet him and holy shit I mean, Tom did an amazing job. And it's interesting because, like, we don't, we only really know of Walt from, I guess, just we as fans only really know him from, like, Wonderful World of Disney when he was on, when he was on the, the weekly show, you know, uh, as Uncle Walt, that he would have everybody call him. And, uh, but I still feel like he did a really good job of showing the person who's like, this is something that I, that I, that I really want to do. And he's a creative and he's trying to understand, he's trying to compromise and balance and everything. I just think he does an amazing job. Just Tom Hanks is great. I love him. I love him as Tom Hanks. And honestly, I don't think anybody, I don't, I can't think of anybody else who would have done the role of Walt Disney any justice. Anyway. And so the big thing is that Mrs. Travers agrees to, assist in the writing of the film. However, she doesn't fully sign away the actual rights. So they're making the movie in the hope that when she's happy, she will finally give her signature. And it's kind of like this 
like the two like Walt and Mrs. Travers are kind of like at each other's throats, but not actually because it's definitely a power play. Like it's a big, big power play um, between her and Walt. And she knows that she has the power because if she doesn't sign those rights, the movie is just scrapped. All the work that they did, garbage, just done. So it's interesting uh, how we're going through this movie. It's like this movie is just being written, just whatever. But, you know, it's like, oh, but is it actually going to be made? Is all this work going to be worth it? Anyway, so uh, one of the big things that Mrs. Travers had made a point of doing was she wants a tape recorder in the room recording every session because she wants to make sure that what she has, she has recorded so that, you know, for evidence kind of thing, right? And I think it's kind of smart, actually, especially if you're in a position where you want to make sure you have that power. You know what I mean? So, yeah, so it's it's just a lot of that. It's a lot of them working in the studio. Um, we see a lot of instances where we see uh, the Sherman brothers who in this film uh, are played by, let's see, um, uh, Richard Sherman uh, is played by Jason Schwartzman and Robert Sherman is played by BJ Novak. Uh, so we see a lot of instances in which the Sherman brothers are writing the songs that, you know, we've come to love, you know, like, like I said in my Mary Poppins episode, every song in that movie is a fucking banger. Every single one, everyone. And it's, it's just interesting. Cause like there's moments where, uh, Mrs. Travers is like giving them notes on the lyrics and you're just kind of like, why are you, what are you doing? This isn't your fucking job. But of course she's there. She's like, you know, it has to be done this way. And like, there's like, they're reading the beginning, the beginning lines of the freaking movie. And it's like, yeah. And going to 17 Cherry Tree Lane, 17 Cherry Tree Lane. And she's like, no, that should read number 17 Cherry Tree Lane. Change that, make that a note. And they're like, that's not even, that's not a line. That's just a stage. That's a, that's a, it's a direction that's not a thing. She's like, I don't care. They're, the audience may not see it, but I will. And it's like that kind of thing. So like, it's funny because like, I'm sitting there and I'm watching this and I'm like, holy fuck, just, just, just shut up. And not because I don't think she shouldn't have a say, but because I know that what she's doing is just strictly to be, is just purely for power. Because she knows she has the power. She knows she does. And it's infuriating. Ugh. Anyway. So, yeah. Uh, like, she makes a bunch of notes, like, how, how the house should look specifically. The fact that Mr. Banks has a mustache, which apparently in the book he doesn't. But Walt specifically requested it. Um, <clears throat> like, things like that. Again, saying that she doesn't. She thinks it's hilarious that they're thinking of casting Dick Van Dyke. And she's like, that's no. Absolutely not. Like she, like she fully vetoed Dick Van Dyke, but of course they got him anyway. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, so the cool thing about this film is that it flashbacks from the writing sessions to when she was a young girl living in Australia because she's originally from Australia, and just kind of seeing her grow up and seeing her and this connection that she has with her father because the film makes it so that her father is represented by Mr. Banks, right? That that 
George Banks is supposed to be her father. And so we so they they work it so that we see that she remembers him a lot and that a lot of this is meant for him and everything. Whether that's 100% true, I I don't fully know. There's a there, I have there's a really good uh website here. It's called History vs Hollywood in which uh it goes really uh like point by point in depth about the differences uh between um between uh, the film Saving Mr. Banks and the actual facts of it. Because, of course, like a lot of this film is, you know, quote unquote, Disney-fied. Um, because, you know, why wouldn't it be? Almost every film that's ever been put out that has ever said, based on a true story, they've taken artistic license and liberties. So the, I'm not honestly not surprised that, not, that this film isn't 100% accurate because... No, of course not. But anyway, um, yes. So the cool thing that I think that they did is that they did make it known that her father was an alcoholic. Like, it's no secret. But I think the cool, I think that the good thing that they did, which is not something we normally see, is that they showed her father to be a good man. He was a good father. He genuinely loved his daughters and his wife. They never show him, like, abusing her. He snaps at her at one point, but it's clear that it's because he's drunk. And and that's not to excuse him, but I'm just saying, like, he never shows, like, physical abuse to her or any outright emotional abuse. It's clear that she, that the wife is not happy because she's seeing the toll this is taking and it's taking a toll on her as well. Because he was fired from his job and they were forced to move to a small, teeny, tiny little town because it was the only job that he could get. And so she sees the toll that this is taking. And so it's hitting her hard emotionally. But the what I really like is that they don't show him being a shitty guy. They don't show him being a bad person. They just show him as being someone who's struggling with an addiction and the big thing that we need to remember about addiction is that it is heavily psychological. You know, there's a heavy psychological uh, aspect to addiction. And I think what they do really well in this film is that they just show that you can you can have the addiction and, you know, it's not always a tragic story in terms of uh, how it affects the family. I mean, sure, it's affecting the family, clearly. You know, with him having to, you know, move jobs and stuff like that and being fired from his jobs. But what I mean by that is that it's not showing him as being this deadbeat dad who doesn't give a shit, who's like yelling and screaming and throwing things and is just, you know, is is a bad person. They're just showing that he's just genuinely suffering from his addiction and is taking a toll until eventually he get he uh, he gets the tuberculosis diagnosis. Uh, it doesn't outright say that he's suffering from tuberculosis. This is something that uh, this is a. a a piece of trivia that was extrapolated from the actual facts. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, and so I just think that's a really nice thing to see is that, you know, people who do struggle with addiction and alcoholism, or I guess just addiction in general, aren't always terrible people. Sometimes, and most of the time, they are truly just people who are suffering from something that they can't control. And that's why they need our help. You know, they need uh, the help of people to steer them in the right direction in order to receive the help. And I think the problem with this is that he is that, um, 
uh, Mr. Goff, I can't remember his first name, um, but uh, Pamela's father just was unable to get the resources in order to help him. And so, yeah, but ultimately it was the tuberculosis that killed him, not the alcoholism. So I think, you know, that's a thing. Um, yeah. Uh, so it cuts that between back and forth between a lot of the sessions in the studio, them writing the story and that kind of thing. Um, and they do at times show her interaction with her driver because apparently he's like the only person that she ends up liking. And I think part of that is because just the character of the driver, whether he was real or not, I mean, I'm sure she had a driver, but I don't know whether or not there was an actual interaction with him to the degree that it shows in the film. But I just think it's really nice to see that she actually connects with somebody because otherwise throughout the entire film, she's just very closed off. She's a very walled off person that you don't really want to like Um, just because she is, you know, for lack of a better phrase, she's very much a bitch in the movie. But I think it's nice that they show the character of Paul uh, Paul Giamatti's character, the driver, being able to kind of reach her in a different way. Uh, He does tell her at some point um, that his daughter, who is disabled, uh, that he comes across the fact that his daughter is reading Mary Poppins. And... Yeah, and so and, and the fact that he sees her loving the story and laughing and smiling and you know that kind of thing and how it makes her happy and he's happy because of that and so he thanks her kind of thing. Uh a really cool thing that she does is she makes a list of other people with disabilities uh who have succeeded in life who have like made great strides. For example, she brings up Albert Einstein and uh, Frida Kahlo, both of which uh, have their own individual uh, situations. I, I I can't confirm what they were. I think Einstein was autistic. I think. And I don't recall what Frida was or what her disability was. And it's funny because one of the people that she writes on the list is specifically Walt Disney. And he's like, Walt Disney. And she's like, yeah. And then like brings up a bunch of issues that he, he apparently has. Uh, I can't confirm or deny whether or not what she says is true. Uh, to my knowledge, uh, he didn't have any, uh, I guess, outwardly presenting disabilities. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think you can call lung cancer exactly that considering he's, you know, chronic smoker and you know eventually would develop lung cancer uh which would eventually kill him but you know anyway and so uh yeah uh, there are some other really good moments in the film where she makes the point of saying like why is he so awful and this is a moment in which we we're seeing a lot of uh her remembering her father and stuff like that and they're like what are you talking about and she's like why do you have to make miss george banks so cruel he's not cruel And it's interesting because I don't think they thought about it up until this point. The fact that Mary Poppins doesn't come to save the children. She comes to save Mr. Banks, hence the name of the movie. 
Uh, and of course, you know, for those of you and for those of us who have actually seen the film, we understand that the stuff that she's doing is in order to help George, not necessarily the children. Because the children are kids. They're pains in the asses. George is the one that has that struggles with issues. And so she makes the point of saying that. And um, yeah, it's interesting, like little bits and things like that when we're watching. Uh, but eventually there's a moment where she finally where she's like oh they were showing her uh one of the songs they were showing her uh fly a kite the song uh fly uh let's go fly a kite and apparently in the film they show that that's the one that really won her over and really made her uh enjoy things apparently that's not true apparently the actual song that it was is feed the birds which is interesting because that's of course walt's favorite one and it's funny because there's a moment in the film when Walt is uh, kind of in the studio late at night and he hears, I think it's Richard, uh, playing the piano and singing. And he walks into the studio and he's playing Feed the Birds. And once he's finished, Walt's like, that'll work. And I'm like, oh, fuck, that works. That's so good. It's just, yeah, just that whole, the whole moment is just very good. And of course, that's when he goes down and talks to Richard about how she's a nightmare and how he's like, but I get it because I was on her side and talks about the Mickey Mouse moment. Uh, eventually, <laughs> Walt decides to take her to Disneyland, uh, which she absolutely hates. I think, and I think it's hilarious. But the fact that she went to Disneyland with Walt Disney and I'm like, holy fuck. Talk about like a once in a lifetime opportunity to go to Disneyland with Walt himself. And I'm like, holy shit. It's great because her driver drives her up directly to the gate because they could at that point because, of course, uh, the parking lots weren't weren't done. Uh, California Adventure was, wasn't even a thought at the time. And so you he could uh, or Mrs. Travers's driver literally drove up to the gate of Disneyland. And he sees him there, and he's like, "Oh my god!" He's like, "Oh my god, that's him! He's there!" And, I, and in my head, I'm like, "Yeah, I would, be, I would react the exact same way." It's just really funny because in that moment, I feel like uh, the driver is very much us, the audience, and we're like, "Ah!" Anyway, it's just very funny. Uh, but yeah, and so she thoroughly just kind of is like, "Man," about the whole situation. They go to the carousel. He puts her on uh, Mrs. Disney's favorite horse. Which I think is actually a true thing. I think that is actually true. He, uh, she did do that, and then yeah, and it's just it's just a very cute moment and stuff like that. And they talk and they have their little conversation. Um, yeah. Eventually, though, she finds out that they have the dance sequence with the penguins, and she's like, "So, but how do you expect to do the penguins? Like, are they going to be trained penguins? I'm I'm very confused." And then I think, uh, uh. One of the Sherman brothers is like, oh, they'll be animated. And uh, Don DeGrati, who is the screenwriter, is just like, Dick, no, shut up. And he's like, well, what are you talking about? Well, what do you mean? They're, they'll be animated. And she is furious. She just marches into Walt's office and she's like, really? I said no animation and you're going to put animation in this movie? And he's like, yes, it'll be an animated sequence. But the actors will be real. And, of course, this is talking about, you know, when uh, Mary and um, and Bert uh, and the kids all go into the chalk, into the chalk painting, uh, which, you know, today or at that time was 
fucking revolutionary, you know, to have live action and animation at the same time, uh, which would be repeated, of course, later on in Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Any hoozles. But, of course, she is fucking pissed. So much so that she ends up storming out of the office, books the next flight back to England. And she's like, nope, fuck it, I'm out, and just leaves. Uh, it's at that point that they find out um, that P.L. Travers, Pamela Travers, is actually her pen name. And so they track a bunch of stuff down. She gets, uh, she realizes that her real name is Helen Goff. She's Australian, she's not actually English. All of that stuff. And so Walt then hops onto the next flight and goes to her goes to her house in England. Now I don't think Walt actually went to her house. Like this that that whole situation, uh, I think it was completely written for the film. Um hold on here, let me just quickly grab these notes making sure i'm giving you the right info um this website is actually very very cool because it has links to a bunch of uh the actual um recordings uh of the of like the writing process um but yeah i don't think I don't think Walt would actually go to her. I don't think he actually flew to her. I think he uh, did something else in order to try and uh, convince her. But eventually she would uh, she would eventually say yes to writing it or to giving the, uh, uh, what's it called, um, the rights to the film. Uh, it's interesting because in this in this moment in the film, we see Walt talk about Elias, his father, and how he realizes that he had a George Banks in his life, and that's who he's, and that's who he replicated George Banks off was his father, because his father had a pencil with a mustache kind of thing. And of course, his father um, was a hard ass. Uh, this is known. He hated the fact that Walt wanted to be an animator, uh, and he owned a paper company. This is true. Made him and his brother Roy go out and do the deliveries for the paper. That is one hundred percent true. Uh, and yeah, so like the story that Walt gives of Elias being the hard ass and if they didn't do their job, he would beat them, um, I believe is actually true. I do think that he did, that the that uh, Elias did beat Roy and Walt, uh, in part because that was just the time. Like it was like end of the 19th, early 20th century and, you know, child abuse was a thing. Like they would just do that. That's not, there's nothing they would second guess. So the story I fully believed to be true maybe it was a little bit exaggerated but the premise of them having to go out in the snow and deliver these papers regardless of what they're of, of anything uh i do think that that was true and if they didn't then their father would be pissed i i do believe that that's true and so he tells this story to her and as a way to kind of like try and I don't think he's trying to convince her. I think he's trying to show her that he gets it. He's like, I get it. I know that she is you. I know that your story is in this story. And eventually she says, yes, again, this is in the film, whether this happened in reality, I'm not too sure. Um, but yeah, so she eventually says yes. And then they agree. And then they finish with the film. 
Flash forward a bit, and the film is getting ready to be premiered, and it turns out that he did not invite her. And that is true. She was not invited. Uh, But eventually she just kind of was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to go. And so she shows up at the Disney office and he's, and she's like, I'm here for my premiere. I'm ready to go. And he's like, all right. Uh, So she goes to the premiere. We see the premiere. She sees the movie. Uh, There's a moment in the film where she's crying and Walt leans over. And this is at the point where George is heading to the, to the bank to get fired. And Walt leans forward and he's like, it's okay. He'll be fine. It's a happy ending for him. And she's like, I'm not, that's not it. I'm crying because I can't abide the animation. And it's funny because that's actually kind of true. She didn't, she, she was actually crying in the theater, but she was crying because of how terrible and how mad she was about the actual movie. She hated it. She hated the film like a hundred percent of the time. Like she, she, she did not like it. I don't think until like 30 years later when after a long time of not watching it, she rewatched it again. And I think and that at that point, she was like, oh, OK, yeah, I kind of like this thing. Um, but upon release, she fucking hated it. So I just think it's funny. Now, she was paid, I think, like $100,000 with a 5% uh, 5% uh, what's it called? Um, she would receive 5%, I think, of sales. I don't know if that was of the movie or of merchandise. Uh, I cannot remember. Um, but basically the film made her bank. She made tons of money. So I don't think in that sense she can exactly, you know, complain. So yeah, uh, all in all, this movie, I really enjoy this movie. I think it's really good. And as someone who likes to know the like the like the creation of things and the background of things i like i like this movie because i like seeing even if it's not 100 percent accurate i like at least knowing a little bit and so yeah and actually uh by the near the end of the film when she's back in in england this is after she's already signed the rights she's writing a new book and it's called mary poppins in the kitchen which is actually a book she that would later she would later finish and publish in uh, 1975. So yeah, I, I just think that's a fun little like thing that they add, that they included. Um, but yeah, if you're interested at all in kind of learning about the, I guess the background of Mary Poppins and at least a little bit of how it was made, this movie is, I think, really good for that. It's very heartwarming. It's very touching. And again, even like the flashback stuff, it's not meant like you you don't see terrible people you see people just suffering with something that a lot of people suffer with today so even the flashbacks when we see her as a kid and her dealing with her father's alcoholism and of course later on uh tuberculosis and death it's not a tragic tale yeah it's well it's tragic in that you know her having to witness her father being an alcoholic and suffering and dying but it's not tragic in that you don't see that she comes out of it hating him she actually she comes out of it like just still loving her father very very deeply uh which i think is kind of nice uh so yeah so all in all 
a very sweet movie and especially when they're writing the songs and like because the songs are just so damn good and they mean so much it's just so wonderful seeing them write them and presenting them like and just imagining what it must have been like in that in that room when they were first being presented being like here's this fun song super and just like being like this is just gonna be a fun song later fucking like what 50 60 70 years later wait 1960 yeah like something like 60 years later 60 plus this that song is still to this day being played and listened to and sung and it's great and just oh anyway i really enjoy this film i really recommend it i think it's really sweet it's very again it's just very good and yeah so I, I give this movie seven, eight out of ten. I think that's my rating for it. Yeah, it's a great, great film. It's really good. Everybody does such an amazing job in it. All the actors are really good. And again, fucking Tom Hanks and Emma Thompson. Ugh, the two of them, so fucking good. Anyway, anyway. But yeah, so that's my review for that. And now, next week, we are doing the thing, everyone. We are jumping into the freaking Bronze Age. I am so excited. We're just going to do it. <laughs> uh, first film of the Bronze Age is The Aristocats, which I'm very excited for. Because uh, that's also just a great movie. Um, and yeah, so tune in for that. And I hope y'all have a wonderful week. Uh, take care of yourselves. Drink your water. Take your meds. Eat your foods. Uh, wear your masks. Get vaccinated. All that jazz. And we'll see y'all next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>